Welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hartley. This podcast exists to inspire and encourage your heart-centered leadership. Each week, I share interviews with some of the greatest heart-centered leaders in the world. And I hope that our time spent together helps you leave a heart print where those around you are left better than yesterday. Please visit abty.co.uk if you would like us in your corner. These interview sessions are brought to you by Matt Media Online Marketing, an independent agency who specialise in content marketing, helping business owners get their message seen by the right audience. If you want to get your business seen through the power of social media, head to mattmedia.online. On episode 227, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a Harvard-trained physician, clinical cardiologist, and certified mindfulness meditation teacher. Dr. Jonathan has over 20 years of clinical experience. He spent decades trying to hide his anxiety, depression, and burnout, and began a personal quest to discover the roots of healing, health, and happiness. Along the way, he noticed that his patients, colleagues, and countless others were eager to learn the timeless practices that help Jonathan heal and thrive. Jonathan is the author of a book that is due out early 2024, which you can pre-order by heading to the link in the show notes. It's called Just One Heart. It's a cardiologist's guide to healing, health, and happiness. I hope you enjoy the conversation that I have with Jonathan and some of the insights and takeaways from that book, which will be out next year. Be sure to head to the show notes, check out all the good links, pre-order the book, and here we go. Here's episode 227 with Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Jonathan, welcome to the Always Best Thing Yesterday podcast. How are you, brother? Doing great. It's so good to be with you. Yeah, big shout out to our great friend, David Bryan, for connecting us. I've, uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation since I came aware of your, your incredible content. Um, because I love it. It's just so counter the world, right? We, you know, you're a, a cardiologist but you're one of these guys that isn't just looking at the heart like it's a biological pump. That's right. That's right. That's uh, it's different than the way I was taught. I've been in medicine for 25 years and I remember the early days where they would give you a book, this Atlas of the heart and you'd open it yeah. up and look at all the, the pumps and the valves. And I had no idea what was missing from that book at the time. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? Cause I, you know, I do, I, I like the, the definitions of words and you know you you search cardiologists and it's like an expert of the heart and, and and invariably it comes up with like the ventricles the vessels and all the kind of things it's very kind of like newtonian type um matter isn't it and um but yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into this topic around the heart but um yeah i'd just love to know a little bit about your background i was i was doing some research and i heard that you were one of one of seven you know come from a, a family of doctors and and then all seven become doctors that's that's incredible love to know more it's, about that it's wild i can thank my father for that he you know when someone sets a strong example mm. so many are inclined to follow and my dad was one of those people and He's turning 97 this week, so I'm going to go see him in New Jersey. Yeah. And, uh, so thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't just a doctor, but he practiced out of our house. So imagine after a supper or lunch, 
dad would say, I'm finished. I'm going to go and see more patients. That's how it was. And there would be people who would walk onto our front lawn. There was a little line and they would open up the door and enter into our house, but it was in the first level. So there was this sense that healing was happening in our house. Mm -hmm. And it was a great mystery. We would have fun as kids looking through his medicine cabinets of like ether and rubbing alcohol and penicillin. Um, and I think there are some stories of my middle brother, David, who would flush some of the medicines down the toilet to see what colors they would make. <laughs> yeah. Hey, my friends, thank you for listening to the interview so far. We are six. Yes, Always Better Than Yesterday has been in existence for six whole years. And as a thank you for being part of this community, I'm going to give you a special offer. We don't usually do special offers and discounts around here because we offer so much for free. But on this occasion, I want to offer you six sessions for the price of three. I can help you connect with your heart set. I can help you bring more of your heart work to the world and I can help you leave more of a heart print on those around you. It's six sessions for the price of three. You have until the 30th of June to claim this offer. And one final thank you for being here. We are six. Here's to the next six years of Always Better Than Yesterday. We hope that you being part of our community leaves you better for those who need you. It's six sessions for the price of three. You can claim this offer by DMing us at Always Better Than Yesterday UK on Instagram. Email us podcast at abty.co.uk. And here we go. Back to the interview. Thank you for being here, friends. Wow. And I guess, you know, it's very much, you know, kids are curious, right? You start to look and, you know, I've got a, a 10 year old and, a, and an eight year old and, you know, they're curious. Sometimes I'm recording podcasts and my son can hear and he's listening through the door. And so he's started to li listen and get curious about these concepts. I, uh, was doctor, was being becoming a doctor the, the obvious choice? Was it one that you felt compelled to do? Like, how does one mm. go and, you know, follow in the path that you did? Yeah, it was, it was sort of clear that there were messages coming from the home front that this is something worthwhile. It wasn't, you have to be a doctor. It was just from my mom and my dad who were very much embedded in the world of education, um, of intellect, of science. My mom was a quantum physicist in the 1950s and 60s. Father was a chemical engineer and then the town doctor. And at the same time, when I would go to school, I was interested in poetry and juggling and then magic and all of these things that had nothing to do with science. So. I was, uh, I was exploring two worlds at the time, and I think there were a lot, Ryan, of pressures, uh, as there are on so many kids. Uh, of course, I'm going to be looking at my next brother older and all six above me, and not only seeing what made them happy, but seeing where the parents were approving and where there was celebration of achievement. Yes. And that really, it hit me on an unconscious level at the mm -hmm. time and drove me to make some decisions that... I can't honestly say I would have made all of the same decisions if I was in a different house. Yeah, I was listening to one of the podcasts that you're on before, and and um, it kind of spoke to me that your family values was, yes, one of study and academia, but one of service, that service at the heart of it was quite important. Mm, yeah, I would say that my mom set that up pretty strongly. She was uh, mm. both an applied nuclear physicist but she also was a college professor and she felt strongly about sharing knowledge. Uh, and there was a humility there. So even recognizing that between, you know, Descartes and, uh, and Newton, all the way up to Einstein and the moderns, she was fascinated by the evolution of science and she was a pure scientist at heart. 
So she would want to share that information. And my father gave in so many ways. And they would always say, we don't care what you do. We just, we want you to have a fulfilling life. Um, make sure you study hard and you help other people. Yeah, it's powerful. <laughs> it's really powerful, isn't it? And um, hmm. uh, at what point then is this, uh, this, did you go to college, cardiology? Mm. I, I must take taken some years of, of academia because you've been practicing what over 20 years I uh, yeah i graduated medical school 25 years ago the way that it happened was i uh, i explored two paths in my education uh, beginning even in high school where i was studying science and i was also fascinated uh, by writing and i was in leadership positions and I also founded the, the Juggling Club and we performed in the <laughs> talent show. And so in college, I went on and I pursued art history. So I studied at Williams College in Massachusetts, art history. I studied philosophy. Um, I studied history. And at the same time, of course, I had an eye that I would be a doctor and I would somehow integrate the humanities back into medicine. I didn't know it at the time, and that's exactly what I'm doing now. So, yes, I, I had a sense that there were two paths in my life, and now they separated for a while. One yeah. fell away. The humanities and the heart really fell away, Ryan, partly because that was the, the track I was on, the external message, the curriculum, and part of it was my own uh, falling apart of the heart, I guess I would call it, where there were too many painful and confusing emotions that I just chose to shove them down and put them aside so I could get through the rigorous training of medicine. Mm. I've had a couple of conversations recently, which is looking at the irony of this type of world, the podcasting world, where we come and we share these stories and we say, hey, this is the steps I took and here's the, here's the healing I had to go through, as if it's almost like we tell it like it's a linear story. Oh, this happened and then I did this and then I, <laughs> and, and, and I think my audience are wise enough to know that things aren't always linear, but I, I'd just love to dive in with your permission to the, 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 the heartbreak. You know, what are some of the... Uh, the things that uh, Jonathan and his heart have, have gone through to get to the point where he's uh, healing people with the power of their heart. I think, Ryan, if I'm going back in my mind right now, it's coming to me that when I was very young, uh, five or six years old, I was playful, I was an explorer. Um, and at the same time, there was a sense of separation. Uh, I always felt like I was an observer, like on the side of the room, uh, not necessarily part of the activity, but curious to analyze and interpret other people's behavior. And so there was this sense of separateness that um, it was a beautiful thing in retrospect. It gave me a sensitivity, which I've carried with me through my life. And I know you have that same sensitivity. And at the same time, it was a bit of a curse because I had this narrative in my mind that I'm different somehow and I don't fit in and I don't belong. Hmm. So at a very early age, uh, what was, would serve me later would also keep me in pain, I would say. And so I can remember then in high school, you know, being at the parties with the boys and the girls, and they seemed to be having fun. And uh, I would have instead have this voice in the back of my head saying, they're judging me. They think I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. I'm a loser. I don't belong here. What's that guy doing? Even though outwardly you'd say, why would you think that? You were, you were a nice kid. You were friendly. Yeah. And so I had this sense of separateness, which I later began, you asked about the cracks in the heart, and I'm kind of going back and reconstructing it as we speak. I, I, I then realized that I was 
creating some of the cracks myself by the harsh language and the harsh hmm. ways that I would communicate in order to motivate myself to do better in class so that I could achieve these externally uh, hmm. placed goals. I would say things like, you, you suck, you're not smart enough, you're not working hard enough. Right. And there was this spillover effect. So as you can imagine, that voice never shut off when I went into the social circle or back, mm. you know, out in the playground. And so the voice was always there. And it would take me about 30 years later to realize that I wasn't a friend to myself. In fact, I was harming myself over and over each and every day with my thoughts, uh, which led to certain behaviors that kept me further separated. And I essentially was proving my own philosophy, which is that I'm different. I don't fit in. So I had created this self-fulfilling cycle, which took decades to, first of all, become aware of. And then with every means of practice, I could desperately get my hands on because I had this other life that I had to keep up. I was seeing 3,000 heart patients a year. And yet on the inside, I, I had zero emotional vocabulary. I didn't know the difference between resentment, frustration, cynicism, hostility, and anger. I didn't know the difference between affection, uh, intimacy, love, compassion, and empathy. And so I decided that I would become my own expert for my own health and healing in the world of the heart. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a quick moment to introduce the new official sponsor of the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast, Matt Media Online Marketing. Matt Media have been involved in the production of over 100 interview sessions. I highly recommend their services. Matt Media Online Marketing are an independent agency who specialize in content marketing, helping business owners get their message seen by the right audience. If you want your business seen through the power of social media, head to mapmedia.online. You can find the link in the show notes. And here we go. Back to the interview. Hmm. Yeah, and because we'll, we'll touch on some of the traits of the heart shortly. But I think there's a there's a wisdom there that, you know, that, that wisdom that I think... People say to me sometimes, "Are oh, you so wise for someone so young?" And and I've kind of come to think. I've t I take some time. I think, why do people say that to me? <laughs> and, 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 I, and I and I and I think it's because I just have the willingness to look at the lessons, like the willingness to just sit with and be with myself, my story, mm. and and just try and become a student of, I guess, myself, my my inner workings, and and I guess that's where the the wisdom I feel like. I have gained is that I've always had a desire to learn and, and, mm. and a desire to try and find meaning and, and make sense of whatever this life is. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I really resonate with, with, with uh, some of the ways with which you um, speak around that, you know, and, and for me, like it, I didn't get to, I, I didn't get such a realization around that kind of, feeling of absence of belonging and, and as if I had someone in my corner until I was like late twenties, I was, I had a career in the police and I was in my leadership development. You know, my mindset was working well. I was very successful. I was on a high, you know, high achieving path. And then I get completely tripped over by this, this instance that happens that leaves me completely wounded. Hmm. And I have to then take some time and go, what is this about? And it just take, <laughs> it just took me back to, 
younger, you know, some really important people in my life left, and I have this narrative around people don't stick around, people leave, and 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 here it is, almost like playing out again, late twenties, and I was like, wow, like I'm sure I'm not the only one that goes through stuff like this. Yeah, it's so beautiful how you describe that, Ryan. It's almost like there's this operating manual that we're behaving based upon that, but we we've never seen the manual. But it's it's been programmed in a way, and it's like the work that you're describing and that I've had to do is is really to find this hidden manual that's driving my behaviors and my thoughts, and then ask the question of who wrote this book anyway, and maybe there would be one that I might write differently based on what what lights me up on the inside. I'm going to rewrite the manual. So I I like how you kind of put that in context. Yeah, and and you know, it comes back to that thing of it not being linear. It's try something. Does it work? Does it reveal something? Do I do mm-hmm. I gain connection to, you know, it's a series of different thoughts and actions and practices and spaces mm-hmm. and places. It's, it, uh, I'd love to know some of the things that kind of put your heart back together on the journey. Um, Ryan, can I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead, mate. Go ahead. It was you described yourself as being a student, and that really hit me. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it, you, you started by saying, well, where does the wisdom come from? And I'm, I'm really curious, what are the qualities that a student must have to develop wisdom? Because I think there's a lot of teachers in the world right now, and maybe not, an, not enough students. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, for me, I guess, I've always had this thing around just not being labeled an expert because i've always just just i guess have a heart belief that i am a lifelong learner Mm. and i guess along that with that comes with suspending the judgments suspending the need to be right and i guess Mm. characterized by a curiosity of oh let me just maybe i can learn something i believe Mm. i can learn something from anyone um any in any situation i can Mm. always learn something more about myself the way the world works my skill set and other people and and Mm. i guess I don't know whether that's a mindset, whether that's a heart set, but either way, I'm. I think that then, if all things flow from the heart, it makes my thoughts and my actions mm. look like someone who is always willing to learn. Mm. And Beautiful. How, how great is it that I get to ask questions for a living, right? <laughs> I, I'm envious. I'm envious, and I'm going to admit that out front. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and. Uh, I, I think anybody that's able to take the concept of the heart beyond its kind of material function mm. um, is doing in, incredible things because the, the heart transcends the mind, in, in my opinion. Sometimes mm-hmm. matters of the heart transcend all logic, mm-hmm. reasoning, understanding sometimes. So that some of the greatest thing we'll do is, is try and put words to it, try and put an understanding to it. Mm. And I guess... I, I recall in some of your work that there's this period in the early, I think about 2010, 12 time when mm-hmm. you start to think about the heart being more than just this yeah. biological pump. I I come from a background in policing where they weren't quite ready for heart-centered leadership. The type of leading <laughs> with love that I talk about. They you don't say. Ready. You don't right. say. <laughs> and, and I, and you know, there's it's a it's a logical, it's a rational, it's a hierarchical structure. I guess no, not too dissimilar to maybe kind of, you know, uh, you know, scientific community, yeah. um, and 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 doctors. So, so t- take us back to that point where you're starting to explore the depths of hearts. 
Hmm. It only happened, that shift only happened because of what I was feeling inside of me at right. the time. It wasn't because of something that, uh, uh, that I learned in school. Um, and I could barely localize where it was happening, but it was happening from literally from inside my own heart. So as I was going to work, I was feeling a pain in my chest. Uh, sometimes if I had too many patients to see or if the decisions that I were, was making felt overwhelming. What if I'm wrong? What if I make a mistake in the middle of the night to this person and to their beautiful family? What happens? And so there was this kind of burden on my shoulders, but I literally felt it squeezing my heart from time to time. And I couldn't tell anyone about it because I was certain it meant that I was overly anxious for a doctor. And, and what would that look like if I even dared express outwardly how I was feeling on the inside? Because it goes, ver and I imagine it's not different for, for police officers. Can you imagine a police officer saying to a colleague, I'm feeling some anxiety today. It's just not okay to say those things. And I, and I think that's why we suffer. And so that's why I suffered around 2008, 9, 10. The same time I alluded to the fact that I already had a sense of separateness from others and from the world, even though I was deeply sensitive to them. It's a paradox. And at the same time, I also had this uh, negative inner experience, which was self-criticism, but really became and was, was tied up with anxiety. I mean, I was a master at thinking of everything that could go wrong, which in a sense has made me a very good doctor, very good doctor. Because if you come to me with one problem, I've already got 50 possible problems we have to look out for. You didn't even think about. But you, the flip side of that is uh, it just made my anxiety even worse because I had no tools to uh, let go of uh, the wild, racing, worrying mind. Yeah. And in 2010, at the same time, Ryan, um, my best friend, who was the person who started me on this journey of looking inward and uh, with compassion, was my sister, Andrea. And uh, at the age of 40, she called and said that she was a doctor herself. Um, she was a radiologist, of all things, who was expert at seeing inside the body and brain and all this. And she told me that her vision was blurring. And uh, she had been seeing the eye doctor a few times over a few weeks. And then eventually she, um, she described that on her own uh, CAT scan machine, she had an image of her brain and saw there was a tumor there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we found out quickly that there was no cure. So over the next four or five years, I was trying to be with my sister as much as possible uh, as she was dying uh, from this tumor. And at the same time, she maintained this grace and beauty and uh, childlike curiosity of everything going on as opposed to a rage and an anger and a bitterness and a hostility which i see in many people who are diagnosed so i lost my sister in 2010 on valentine's day of all days and she was the first person who said to me johnny you you might try to be kind to yourself and so, so her message is living on in me and in the work that I do, whether I'm with my patients or whether I'm with you, she's holding my hand, she's holding my heart, and she's saying, can we just be kind to ourselves? Mm. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I hope it gets easier. And I think with what you're saying, you know, I think as a society, we've often had metaphors for the heart, like, you know, I just feel it. I just... 
I can't think of any off the top of my head, but we, we, we have metaphors. We speak of the heart as if it is something more, right? We intuitively know this. Mm. Um, but, but when you, like you say, when you're trying to bring that, um, the magic in with the, the scientific, mm. um, I, I, I guess, what are some of the things that you would treat people with as a, as a, I guess, a traditional cardiologist mm. that maybe you have made, um, found ulterior ways of being mm. able to, um, to treat these people, to heal these people. Mm. I'll give you an example as I think now, you know, cause I'm, uh, I'm going back practicing cardiology for over a dozen years. And if I were, if you were to watch me, let's say 10 years ago, or you were to come into my office, Ryan, and you would sit down one of 20, 24 patients in a day, and you'd say, well, I'm here because I have a pain in my chest. So my first question would be based on a checklist that I learned in medical school, which is where exactly is the pain? <laughs> and then I would say something like, when did it start? And then I would say, what makes it better? What makes it worse? And I would go through what would be known as the traditional risk factors for heart disease. So I'd ask, oh, do you smoke? How's your diet, et cetera. Yeah. And this is all very fine and very basic and very important. <laughs> and at the same time, what's important to know about this 10 year old version of me is that I had my own agenda. My agenda was to get to your diagnosis as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, mm -hmm. and to decide what was best for your heart. 10 years ago, my job, I saw it was my job to see what was best for your heart. And there was a fundamental shift in the way that I approached patients. Uh, as I realized that my own heart was so much more than a pump, I felt my own heart breaking. I needed, I knew what it was like. I knew how it affected me every day in every way. I knew what healing was for the first time when I had to look inward and to nurture my heart, to reparent myself, to give me the affection that I maybe didn't have as a child. And it was only as I was doing that, that I could then extend that to my patients in a way that wasn't taught in medical school. Mm. So fast forward now, Ryan, 10 years, if you come and see me in the clinic, I'm not gonna start by saying, you know, where's your pain? I'm just going to start with a pause, with a breath, with a moment, with looking into your eyes, seeing what color is this man's eyes and what's happening inside his soul and his spirit right now as we're entering into this sacred conversation. Yeah. And the conversation evolves from there. And then someone says, what's that got to do with my heart? Yeah, so the answer is, we believe in the West that the heart is just, you can hear it, you can see it, you can feel it, you can measure it. And if you can't do any of those things, it doesn't matter. That's how our business world works as well. You need the metrics. And so this gets back to your uh, setting the context here, which is we humans are, have been very smart for thousands of years, and we've lost some of that intelligence. As we developed with the Industrial Revolution after the Enlightenment, there was this, this sort of sacred sanctification of the brain and the mind. And there was a shifting away from the wisdom of the heart that was known for 3,000 years by ancient Egyptians, uh, the Hindus, the, the Buddhists, um, you name it, the Native Americans, indigenous traditions all around the world knew mm. 
but the heart was so much more than a beating pump in the chest. Mm -hmm. The heart was the spirit. It was the soul. It was the breath of life. It was the source uh, and endpoint of emotions. And we think we're so smart. We say, oh, no, emotions live in the brain. They live in the amygdala and they're serotonin, right? Isn't it that? And as we've thought we've gotten so smart, we've gotten away from the fact that no, no, we had it right all along that emotions live in the chest and people who feel anger and cynicism and hostility, guess what happens? They are at higher risk for heart attacks and heart disease. And people who have a joy and love and all the heart-centered emotions, what happens if you study their hearts? You literally discover that they have lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, better social connections, better health-related behaviors, and fewer instances of heart disease. So, Ryan, I think the answer is looking into your eyes and seeing your spirit has everything to do with the health of your heart. Yeah, and, and, and I think I'm here for that. I absolutely you know, love this topic. I'm, I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation. Um, and, and, and for me, I had to learn how to connect with it, how to understand it. Like you say, how to give myself what I needed. I, I interviewed a wonderful guy called Dr. Gary Chapman, and he was the author of the five love languages. And on the very last page of his book, it says this one line that kind of like shook me to the core. He says, for all the love we do not receive as adults, uh, for, as children. So for all the love we do not receive as children, we become adults that seek it in the world. Mm. And I, and I think the biggest takeaway mm. that I've taken from that is that I became someone who came to the world leading for love rather than from love in, mm. in some way I felt a deep lack and inadequacy within my soul and in my <laughs> spirit. And I sought that in ways of the world. And I was very fortunate enough to have a heart healing experience that I put down to a Jesus encounter. Um, and I'd love to kind of know some of your perspectives on the, the spiritual side. Mm. But um, for me, that was that was a moment where I felt wholeness in a way that I've never felt before, in mm. a way that made me feel like I lacked nothing, that I have mm. all that I need. And, and, and it gave me a level of grace and compassion for a younger version of myself in mm. this present moment. So I can't explain to you what happened to me in that moment. All I know mm. is that my whole body caught fire and, and, and I never wanted to talk to my wife about it again. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but something happened within me that I couldn't yeah. intellectually explain. And, and, and I just, uh, with, with being someone that is, is involved in this healing of people, like what sort of experiences do people describe when they, when they encounter this um, mm. healing path and journey that you take them on? So what I noticed first is there's an ease uh, that sets it over the body when the heart is settled. And part of uh, the healing journey, uh, and, and you know this, is th there has to be a shift from the idea that I am the doctor and you are the patient. I am the knowledgeable one and you are the broken one here to be fixed. That way of thinking is so dysfunctional and it's actually very harmful and it sets up a power dynamic that is the antithesis of a healing context. So, so what I notice happens, Ryan, is instead of taking that uh, egotistical, arrogant approach into the room, uh, I'll enter the room, often gently, I'll try to 
perceive all of the nonverbal cues from the patient and the family, notice what's the mood, what's the thinking, what's the fear level, anxiety, and I can read a lot of that, what the state of the heart is before I even check the pulse. And then when I sit down, I don't sit down on a normal level. I sit down lower than the person that I'm in front of, often on the little footstool that comes out of the, the bench, and I'll look up into the eyes, and there may be a warm touch. And so you asked, well, what do I notice? What shifts do I notice when we set off on a more spiritual heart-to-heart -heart path as opposed to an intellectual journey? Uh, the shift is noticeable immediately. People used to be stressed and nervous when they'd be in the room, and now they say, what is this? There's no power dynamic here. This is a person who's trying to be sensitive and look into my spirit right now, not in a religious sense, but in the sense that there's something that matters a heck of a lot more than a transactional experience with a medical industrial complex. And I'm really, really passionate about trying to help us return to that space of healing I think healthcare has abandoned that. I think we've abandoned that mantle, that responsibility, that opportunity that we could have to lead the way. Instead, people are spend $15 billion a year looking for help in other places. And I don't blame them because I've done it too. Going on re retreats for yoga, meditation, et cetera, psychotherapy, you name it. And so I'd like us in healthcare to make make the experience more about caring and health rather than the, the transaction of health and care. And when I ask patients about their spiritual life, their eyes light up, and there's a warmth, and there's, a, there's sort of a sense of wonderment, like who the heck is this doctor asking me about? Do I, do I go to church and do I believe in a higher power? And do I have a sense of purpose that goes beyond myself? And, and what lights me up? And, it's hard to describe, Ryan. I don't have a, a great words for it, but you know, if you were to, to ask my patients, they would say that it just feels different. Mm. Yeah, you are in the process of writing a, a book. Yeah. Um, just one heart. Yeah. What's the What's the idea behind the title? The idea is, is a bit about this conversation we've been having that uh, a lot of my own suffering uh, that I took with me as I was pretending to care for other people, I didn't know how to care for myself. A lot of that suffering is that I was living with a huge disconnection. Mm. There were two of me. There was the head, which I was identified with, and then there was the heart, mm -hmm. which I had stuffed away because of painful childhood memories of feeling alone, the lack, lack of uh, nurturing and real intimacy from my parents, the loss of my sister and my best friend. And so I was essentially identifying purely with the head version of me. Mm. And just one heart is the idea that our emotional life is intimately connected with our physical life and our cerebral life. And there is just one heart. There isn't an emotional heart and then the physical body. I was training for triathlon. I, my physical heart was as strong as can be, but my emotional heart was anxious, depressed, and broken. And so just one heart means we have to see them as a holistic totality. Mm. So that's the first meaning of just one heart. The second is what happened after I started practicing just one heart for myself? Mm. I would bring my whole self into every encounter, like the patients we described. And I realized that my own heart's physiology, as you said, coming, leading from love, 
instead of for love, as I began to lead from love as the doctor, I noticed there was a shift in my patient's pulse, their literal heart, and their emotional and spiritual sense of, of, of well-being. And so just one heart means what's happening in my heart is going to be mirrored, echoed in some way with, with what's happening in your heart. And I mean that on a literal sense. There's a whole field of interpersonal neurobiology, which now, through my research for the book, I understand that it extends to the heart. So it's interpersonal neurocardiology. Mm -hmm. So my emotions affect your heartbeat. You'd say, that sounds ridiculous. So mm -hmm. that's the second meaning of just one heart. And by extension, the ripple effects. If you and I have a meaningful heart-to-heart -heart connection right here, and your audience can feel that, it's going to shift something about their day. And then it's going to change one small behavior towards their child or towards their loved one. And the effects are beyond measure. That's what just one heart means, that as a society, if we can start to see ourselves not as separate based on politics, based on religion, based on skin color, gender, sexual orientation, you name it. We, there's no such thing as a gay heart or a straight heart or a trans heart or a black heart or a white heart. There's just one heart. And then lastly, Ryan, the third meaning of just one heart comes from the ancient Stoics and the wisdom that they had, which is the, the greatest mistake many of us make is to think we're going to live until tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And we have just one heart beating in the chest and we take it for granted so often and we take this moment for granted. So if we can keep that preciousness of each moment with us and remember we have just one heart, can we be intentional today about how we care for it? We can experience the fullness and richness of life. Mm, beautiful description thank you for that i look forward to uh to having a physical copy in my hands and i think that's scheduled for early 2024 is that correct that's right yeah man look, cannot wait for that and like my cheekbones are hurting like for anyone that's watching the youtube version they'll see my face for anyone's listening they know that what you've just said is so aligned with what we talk about here at always better yesterday there's a word that i'll share with you at the very end of this this podcast it's a word called heartprint. I think number three, what you've just shared there is literally what I what I envisage when I talk about the word heart print. But um, within the book, you're talking about the state of the heart and then some seven traits of the heart. I think this is a real gift, being able to put words to something that so often will transcend our um, our understanding. So uh, what are the seven traits of the heart and uh, which one would you like to explore with us right now? Mm. So. The, the whole idea of seven traits of the heart is a little bit weird uh, and bizarre to talk about uh, either in a medical context or psychological context, because as you open this conversation with, you said that people want to hear skills and tips and tricks, and how did you get from here to there? And I was a sucker for that. I've got a whole library filled with books that, <laughs> that go over those tricks, but they were missing a whole approach that I think is uh, something that it would be worthy uh, of looking at, which is instead of looking at the ways and the tips and strategies, what if we just looked at the ways of being mm -hmm. and, the, and the qualities and characteristics we have inside of ourselves, then we won't have to worry so much about should I go to the gym, should I eat chocolate chip cookies, if we have certain traits and characteristics, those are imbued in us and they will inform every decision in an effortless way. And this is something that the ancients also knew every wisdom tradition focused Yes, on the ritual, but also on developing states of heart and states of mind. And that's where the spirit of the seven traits are coming from. And I've studied all of these traditions and, and interviewed in experts 
And this is where they came from. So the first trait is steadiness. Just like your pulse, if it's rapid and you've come to me, I'm going to help with that first. I'm not going to go down the road and worry about anything else. The second trait is wisdom. And we can talk about the richness of that concept. What does it mean to have a wise heart? Jack Cornfield, who's a meditation specialist who I've learned from, he wrote a book called Wise Heart. And so what does it even mean to have wisdom in the heart, from the heart? Mm -hmm. The third one is openness. And you've expressed some of those qualities. We talked about being a student and what does it mean to be open to the, to the feelings and thoughts of others. And then once we've become steady, we have a wisdom, we have an openness, then we start to experience a wholeness of our heart. Mm. And we integrate those parts of our childhood, those mm -hmm. shadow parts of ourself that Jung would say, into mm -hmm. uh, the totality and live and present ourselves with the wholeness of the heart. And then it gets into the, sort of the final three qualities is we need courage. We need courage. We need self-trust. We need self-support. We need a boldness because life can be terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I see fear in people's eyes every day. And so mm -hmm. what does it mean to have courageous heart? In fact, the word courage comes from cur in Latin, which means heart. Why is it that for thousands of years since the Latins, since the Romans, we believe that courage comes from the heart? Well, it does. And then the last uh, qualities are, I used to be a very serious person, if you knew me before, and now I try to bring a lightness. And I, the wisest, kindest, most beautiful souls that I know have a lightness in their heart that's very hard to describe. And so the second to last of the seven is lightness of heart, people who are lighthearted. How can we cultivate that in our lives? Mm. Which, in order to do that, how can we let go of some of the burdens that we unnecessarily carry? And then the seventh trait of the heart is the ultimate. For me, it's, it's the one that we're building up to with the other six, which is a warmth of the heart, mm. which is how do we connect with others? How do we share ourselves and to serve others in deep and meaningful ways? Mm. I love that. I just want to pick up on the back of the word lightness because you described it almost like a, a weight and a lightness to it. But mm. also the, the readings that I've done in the past have um, revealed that when we're in states of love, we emit biophotons, which is the measurement of light. Mm. So it's incredible, isn't it? When we actually fill our spirit with love, we literally emit light, which is, which is incredible. Yeah, I, I love that connection that you're making, Ryan. Um, you know, in the book, one of the themes that I pick up on is that I was raised as a scientist in the, in the shadow of Albert Einstein, whose picture sat on the wall of our room. And so when you mentioned photons and <laughs> and, you know, you'd be laughed at if you went to medical school and you'd say, did you know that the heart is emitting energy? And at the same time, we're learning that there's an electrocardiogram. You can measure the electricity from the heart. And we didn't learn in medical school, but it's known that the heart emits an energy that can be detectable. There's an electromagnetic force, which yeah. shouldn't at all be surprising yeah. that biomechanical objects emit, emit energy. And so... Um, this lightness of heart, there's so many qualities of light. Uh, there's, uh, th there's an emanation. Um, there's sort of a, a, an ability to pass through certain obstacles. So yeah. I love that. And, that. and that's the kind of heart math stuff that I've, I've learned. I had Dr. Deborah Rosman on the podcast a couple of years back from heart math, the, the, mm -hmm. um, the business side of things. And, uh, you know, their research, talking about the, the field and when you're in higher states of uh, high love, peace, gratitude, all then our field gets long, bigger and can be felt further away. But I think nature kind of lives in that. If we, if we imagine a deer in the forest, hmm. a deer 
senses rather than thinks it's 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 drawing upon every different vibration from the energy and the environment around us it's almost as if we didn't have the ability to think and rationalize stuff we <laughs> would be exactly capable of doing the same thing and i guess mm. that's what people kind of mean when they say like trust your gut follow your instincts you're actually mm. reading that energy from the environment somewhere yeah i would call that intuition yeah and uh, intuition requires that we put aside this Western concept that all uh, information and knowledge comes from the brain. And there's a wisdom that comes from the, the beautiful sensitivity of the body, sensitivity of the heart. Every beat, you can sometimes feel if something's amiss, if a beat is stronger or weaker, same thing in the gut. So absolutely, there's a wisdom of the body that's, that's lost. One of the things that I am really alive to is the the Western culture, the commercialism, capitalism type models. They 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 lead to our lack. You know, you talk about a state of heart that is whole. Well, we live in a society that 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 targets our lack, that targets our inadequacies to make mm. consumers of us. Mm. So it, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because Bruce Lipton's got a concept that says um, it's the environment, stupid. It's like literally bold <laughs> letters in the top of his chapter. It's the and it's a call to action to say, do you know what? Sometimes it's not the problem is not inside our head. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's what our head is inside. So sometimes we take a step back and look at the environment that has been mm. organized around us that's mm. leading our hearts to feel lack inadequate like it needs something else to fill it like it uh, the disconnection that we've got currently going on from people mm. and the division with it particularly in america and all the politics that's going on more mm. divided now than ever and i guess <laughs> let's speak let's speak with a degree of hope and optimism like where where do where where do people start if they really want to connect with the wholeness within rather than the lack without mm. Yeah, I think that's the, the necessary starting point is uh, to stop searching outside of ourselves for what it is that we are seeking. Uh, because if we can't find a way to give ourselves what we're needing, we can never depend just because of the natural chaos of the world mm -hmm. and the entropy there. So I think it goes back to what you were talking about before is that, you know, as children, um, we often don't get what we need. And so can we begin by giving ourselves back what we were missing as children has to be the first step. Otherwise, that lack that the advertisers and the capitalist world is preying on, it's, it's not a lack in this moment. It's a lack of something that we've been lacking for our whole lives, many of us. Mm. How can we begin to fill that, that gap, that void in our emotional hearts, our spiritual hearts, feeling connected uh, as if we love ourselves? as if we love ourselves first and then actually loving ourselves uh, the way that the ideal mother, the ideal mother would love a child or an ideal father would love a child. What does it mean to love? So getting to the heart of your question, as I'm thinking out loud, we have no hope of uh, combating this, this predatory uh, capitalist behavior unless we realize that it's appealing to a lack inside of ourselves that's extremely deep. Uh, and it's, but it's yet very simple to fill in once we recognize that the lack is a lack of love and what is love? We have to then ask this question, which is what is love? What does it mean to fill ourselves with the love that we want to lead with? 
And love has many aspects. One is simply seeing and hearing and being with. It's not a doing, it's a, it's a being around, being near, feeling energy, noticing. Uh, that love is an appreciation. It's not a rejection, it's not a judgment. It's not an attack, love is an embrace. After that, love is an embrace. An embrace not, not with, because of perfections, because of beauty, it's, it's an embrace of the wholeness of the other. And I think that's the love that we want to lead with. That's the love that we must give ourselves, which we have to see the parts of ourselves that we've pushed away, mm. that we've judged. Mm. And I think that's, for me, the beginning of uh, filling up that, that lack, that void, so that we can lead from a place of wholeness mm. and hold a space for others to, to begin to unfold their own wholeness and to show their hearts in a, in a courageous way, because it, you have to see the wound in order to heal it. Yeah. Dr. John D. Martini said this really complicated sentence to me. He says, love is the synthesis of thesis and antithesis. And I took a <laughs> moment for that to just sink in. And it's the, it's the bit that you said earlier with Jung was just the, the integration of the light and the dark, the, the good aspects and the less so desirable aspects of ourselves. And I'm just curious to know with your integration of the of this belief of being the observer of being separate from has that ever disappeared or have you integrated mm -hmm. that to know that on a good day it's your strength and on a bad day it's the if we can call it a bad day it's it's the thing that uh, almost like seeing a scar it just yeah. just shines a little bit as we move yeah uh, i would say the second <laughs> it's it's never disappeared it's part of uh, now it's a strength uh, Whereas it used to keep me separate and a feeling of otherness and a feeling of not belonging and what role do I have? I'm not worthy of this conversation. I don't belong here. I'm just faking it. I'm a pretender. Why would anyone want to listen to me? Um, instead, instead, I, I've got it with me as a natural skill. It goes back to your, you know, being a student, uh, being curious perpetually. And so I have that aspect of it, but the other aspect the one feeling separate from others, feeling different from others, not belonging from others, that's totally gone, totally gone. I have a sense of oneness, a sense of unity, a sense of deep, deep love uh, for really every living person. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean I, <laughs> I like how people behave. It doesn't mean I'll let someone come up behind me with a loaded weapon. It doesn't mean I'll let somebody who's unkind and cruel come into my house or even into my uh, Twitter feed. I'm going to protect that. But at the same time, I can still always remember our basic shared humanity, because for me, that's been the secret to feeling a sense of belonging. And not only that, helping others in my community, helping my patients by modeling that, that it's only when we feel that sense of belonging, that that gap, that void, that that separation in our heart is filled. And that's when we begin to live with just one heart. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and then we extrapolate that to one heart wherever we go. So, you know, we go to our families, we go to our workplaces, we go to our communities. And what's then the extension of that one heart when it's mm. uh, when it unites those around them? The extension is, this is like if you were playing cricket or playing violin or something, you, you wouldn't just go out and play, you would have to practice first, right? And so I'm not inviting 
people in the audience to suddenly go out and wish wonderful things for everyone in the world, they're going to get punched in the face and their mother or sister is going to say something that's incredibly harmful and you're going to end up saying, but I was just following the instruction, just one heart. So we have to be wise. We have, yeah. we have to know it's okay to protect ourselves, to have, to, to have compassion, but also have a fierceness, a willingness to care for ourselves and protect ourselves at the same time. Um, so, so what does it look like? It begins with a practice. Um, it begins with a practice that, that as old as the Stoic philosophers, which is the Stoics who still practice today, have a practice every morning where you begin by extending well and warm wishes in expanding circles, beginning with yourself towards yourself, then to you, Ryan, in front of me, then to everyone listening. And this isn't some magic that I think that I'm going to make everyone heal and feel happy. That's not the purpose. The purpose is can I simply generate within myself a wish, an aspiration, a hope, a dream that you might feel some ease inside of yourself? Whatever, whatever wish you want it, that you would wish for yourself. And then I'll say, well, can I wish it for everybody in the Western Hemisphere? And how about the Eastern Hemisphere? While we're at it, how about everybody on the Earth? What would it be like if everybody lived from a place of abundance? What if everybody knew what it meant to feel love and to give love? What would change in our world? And so then getting back to your question, how does that show up? Well, it shows up at the dinner table in my eyes. Instead of who can I judge right now, it's who can I love and how can I love them right now? Now, I need to be very careful because my children are going to maybe listen to this someday. <laughs> what you're hearing is an aspiration, right? It's yes. your hearing is an ideal state. <laughs> I still yell at people. I still get frustrated. I, I try, but with living a human existence, I'm so human. But unless I set the intention yeah. of what it is that I'm really hoping to manifest, I've yes. got very little hope of, of doing better than, 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 than the basic kind of being but, a frustrated human. But I think what you're alluding to is the discomfort that accountability provides, which I think accountability is of the heart it is to something deeper than intellect what we should be doing it's deeper accountability to who we want to be in this world for each other that that sense of identity for me is is a when i explore this idea of, of who am i really it's almost unlearning all of this and mm. connecting with this as to mm. what what is what does it reveal about who I am and who I want to be and and, mm. and and what's important to that about how I show up for those who who really love me Brian, when you said that, you, you kind of put your head from your head to your heart, who am I really? What I was thinking was this, which is, there is a wisdom uh, called non-duality, right, which is the basis of, of just one heart. If you are this, whatever this is, it's, if it's heart, if it's your essence, if it's your spirit, if I find that I have that same essence inside of me, I am you, right? You are you are me on some on some level, and so that's what came up when you said, uh, "Who who am I?" Yeah, there's there's these memes where it's like God with like a finger puppet, and it's like, "Here's me and here's Jonathan." Like we're all like <laughs> we're all connected to the same source. Yeah. The visual that really helps me is if we both took two cups, right? I've got a glass in my hand, and we yeah. went to this, we went to the ocean, right? And we scooped up some water from the ocean. There's yours, okay? You've got an orange canister with a black lid. I've got a glass. That, they're both filled with the same sauce, right? Um, and that's kind of what gets to me is this idea that we mm. are the 
the source and yet we're in a physical container mm. this yeah. this body in this lifetime which makes us look different which makes us sound different which gives us the illusion that we are different yes. and, and i think that's where the the in, the brain and the intellect and the ego just says well i am separate from you i am not you because if 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 i was you and you were me then i don't exist and my ego is like well I, where's where's my room <laughs> and the ego just wants to protect itself in, you know, from its own death yeah and isn't that part of the the role of the brain itself is to is to create separation is in order for us to judge and and decide and to react so whereas with the heart um there are instincts of the heart for sure there's an instinct to connect and to support but there's also a connect instinct to rage and to fight and so i don't think we're only talking about you know living from the heart i think we're talking about living from a specific part of the heart which is uh, the more generous generative uh, connected part as opposed to the the tribal uh, sort of bare essential primal part. I, I literally saw a video this morning on Instagram. It was a quote from Muhammad Ali that says a, a man, a man lives from the qualities of his heart. If a man <clears throat> is jealousy and rage and, you know, he's, he's, he feels cheated. Well, then that's the behaviors he'll show if he's loved and caring. And, and, and so a man will be, would demonstrate the qualities of his heart and this this mm. idea that when life squeezes what comes out well what comes out is what's already within mm. um i love that i never heard that quote i love that yeah i'll find i'll find it and um and i'll share it with you i'll send it mm. to you so you can see the actual specific version rather than my butchered version but so <laughs> <laughs> um, i love uh, i love victor frankl's book uh, his memoir man's search for meaning and one of the big takeaways I took from that book was this idea that um, many of the prisoners, um, they ended up succumbing to their injuries and dying between Christmas and New Year. And, and Frankel's observations were that um, these people had hope that they would be home by Christmas. Mm. And because that wasn't a real a realization, they gave up hope and then their bodies succumbed to their actual illnesses. Mm. So flippant western world says oh it's the hope that kills us i don't i think it's the opposite i think it's the absence of hope that kills yeah. us yeah. what's your observation around hope and, and 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 i guess for me my observation in this book is that there's something about this spirit of hope that actually meant that they were still alive despite the physical ailments mm. yeah there's no question about that and this has now been validated in modern research so hope fill, falls into a category of human emotions, certain spectrum of what some people call the positive emotions. I, I'm a little bit conflicted about that term. It suggests that there's a good and a bad emotion, which is BS. Yep, but yep. putting that aside, hope falls right next to its brother optimism. And if yeah. you look at the literature in the last 10 years, Ryan, at people who develop heart disease and heart attack, there is no debate that people who are more filled with hope and optimism and a sense that there is a future, a brightness uh, in the future, have better outcomes. Now you might say, how the heck is that possible? A simple belief by someone who's in a concentration camp will make them survive. A simple belief by a heart patient who's had a heart attack that they can get better will make a difference. Well, you understand this is, this is what's the science of manifestation. If I have a thought and an idea in my mind and I can actually see myself in the future in a different state, whether it's a state of feeling or a state of behavior or a state of interaction or belonging, whatever it is, 
there is no debate that the practice of uh, the, our mindset and our visualization of the future will impact that. Now, I have to give a caveat. If someone doesn't achieve the dreams and aspirations that they're holding on to, it's not their fault that they didn't create a good enough vision of themselves or they didn't believe strong enough. Because I think that's a pitfall in some sort of new age um, uh, guru's teachings, which is, mm -hmm. well, it must be your responsibility. You didn't pray hard enough. You didn't see it hard enough. And that creates a lot of guilt and shame. So this is to say that when we are hopeful for a better future, we tend to act differently. We tend to see new possibilities and new solutions, and we tend to be uh, more resilient and be able to withstand some more of the, the struggles that life brings us with strength. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um, I've got a couple of topics I'd love to get onto, but I know that we're short time. So I'm going to go with this one, which is random. It's the child's book that's right in front of me. It's an author called Julia Donaldson. You might know her in America. She was the author of a book called The Gruffalo. And it's mm -hmm. called A Squash and a Squeeze. And the idea of this this book is that a little old lady, she lives in a small cottage. And she's a bit unhappy that her cottage is small. And she calls <laughs> on the help of a wise old man and says, oh, won't you help me, please, because my house is a squash and a squeeze. And and paradoxically, what the wise man does is he fills her house with farmyard <laughs> animals. <laughs> and she's like, this isn't working. Like, oh, my, like, my, my she's like, my house is teeny weeny with five. Yeah. And uh, wise old man, this is enough. And then one by one, the wise old man takes away the animals. And she's like, wow, my house was teeny for five, but it's gigantic for one. Mm. And I guess the point of what I'm getting to mm. is one of actually how much gratitude can play a part in our mm. lives, in our spirit, mm. in our circumstances, mm. without having to change anything. This is mm. where the wisdom of that man came in. He didn't mm. change anything about her cottage. He mm. just gave her the experience of, of perspective. Mm. Beautiful. I know, yeah. I know gratitude has such a power in, in the work that you talk about. It does. Gratitude, it's fascinating. Again, if you take a look at the uh, research on heart disease, uh, people who experience and practice more gratitude have lower rates of heart disease for a number of fascinating mechanisms. We can have a whole nother hour simply talking about how do all these things connect with the physical body. But I promise you, there are connections that are being elaborated by modern science now, what, the, what we knew for thousands of years. So the practice of gratitude changes everything. It's the it's the it's the parent of all the other virtues, uh, because without gratitude, we don't have a satisfaction. You can't be satisfied, you know, unless you have some basic sense. You know, I'm a little fortunate to be where I am. So um, gratitude creates a sense of ease and it's about reframing. It's about looking at our life in a different way. Instead of looking at all the parts that are missing, it goes back to what you said, which is about that basic lack that we've been talking about. Well, I can, I can talk about lack and feel lack and scarcity in my life all day long, every day until I'm dead. And then I lived a life that was lacking. Or in this moment of lack, I can decide to look away from the parts that I thought were lacking and instead find, decide to see the parts that are abundant, mm. that I'm fortunate for. And for me, that's the beginning of gratitude. Yeah, and, and in my understanding of that elevated state of gratitude, it, there's a there's an app called Headspace, right? It's a meditation app. And I think the irony of that app is that it should be called Heart Connection. I think that's mm -hmm. what it's really doing is it's creating a connection in this present moment through the power and the gateway of breath. 
and it's regulating our nervous system. It's giving us back access to our prefrontal cortex. And mm. and then you get this, um, uh, is it homeostasis? You get this this bit where everything's just in harmony. They call some people call that coherence. Coherence, uh, yeah, yeah. That may be the word you're thinking of. Yeah, it's interesting this idea of head space and heart space, and what does it even mean to have space? And I'm going to bring it back to someone that you mentioned, which for me, space is what it's all about. Whether it's space in our head, and you mentioned you know, increasing returning activity to the prefrontal cortex or, or more thoughtful, wise yeah. parts of the brain. The amygdala is not so wise. It's that yeah. type one type of thinking instead of the type two in Kahneman's uh, jargon. Whatever you want to call it, uh, in order to bring ourselves to our higher states of consciousness, uh, our higher states of uh, compassion, we have to create a space uh, away from fear. And so Viktor Frankl, coming back again, said that between stimulus, which is what's happening, the fear, the threats, and re our response, there is a space. That's the head space. That's the heart space that he was talking about. There is a space, and in that space lies our response, and in our response lies our power and our freedom. So in a sense, it all goes back to can we create a sense of spaciousness mm. so that we can restore that gratitude, that hope, that optimism um, for a better day. It's funny. I have these thoughts, right? And I think that quote around Frankl, it really does highlight what it means to be human. You know what I said about the animal kingdom? The animal kingdom doesn't operate from that space. It's stimulus response. There is no space. It's just, it mm. reacts, uh, you know, and some might say, Steve Peters might call that the chimp response. But I think in that gap is our is our ability to lead ourselves. It's our ability to make a conscious choice, mm. and obviously with choice comes responsibility, right? And and there are many human beings out there that you know there's a reason why they say ignorance is bliss, right? <clears throat> because once you know better, you have to do better. But I <laughs> but I truly believe that there's that gap in the between, and you know, for any leaders that that are, are really trying to take this concept to heart, it is that space that we're working on. If mm. in that space you can find a more loving, kind, compassionate, serving way of being, mm. well, then you're leaving this 1% ripple effect, this one degree mm. of possibility that is going to be greater than what otherwise would have had if you just reacted from some kind of amygdala. Yeah. Ryan, this, uh, this concept of, of leading from the heart, from having just one heart, has uh, tremendous applications for the business world and for leaders. And I've spoken to professors at business school and gonna be speaking at other business schools for this very reason. Uh, this is not fluffy duffy mumbo jumbo woo woo we're talking about. Yeah, if someone that. wants to be successful in business, if that's their goal, and I'm hoping that the new definition of success is not just the bottom line of the dollar, I'm hoping that the new definition of success is the sense of fulfillment and a, and a richness of connection in our modern workplace. Uh, at the same time, you know, leaders who lead from a place of uh, chaos, uh, frustration, resentment, um, pride, they tend not to be as effective over the long term and they don't stick it around. They create toxic environments. And so I'm hoping that leaders will begin to look at the qualities of heart and lead from them. This steadiness of an even peaceful heart, this wisdom of the heart, uh, an openness. And when, when leaders lead with openness, they're curious, they're humble, they ask questions more than they tell people what to do. And there's a sense of a team and I'm here for you and you're here for me and there's a humanity. 
it's no different that relationship of a leader uh, and the employees as it is with a doctor and a patient. I think that we should shift the way we do business and make it about healing. There's a lot of wounds that need to be healed before we can have sustainable success by whatever way we define that. Mm. Yeah. I interviewed a wonderful man called Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who in his book, Hold On To Your Kids with Gabor Mate, talked about this idea of um, attachment being center of mm. uh, parenting. And, and in that attachment, the child gives the uh, parent the permission to be the parent. It's not the it's not this idea that we want to be a good parent, therefore we are. It's actually if there's an attachment, the child goes, "Okay, I will submit to your authority." <laughs> and I and I think the same is true of the of the leadership world is actually people will only truly want to follow us if we have a degree of attachment or shall we say heart to heart connection with the people that we lead. That in some way they know that we have their interests at heart, we care. We want to serve. We want to make sure that they've got an environment where they belong and can do their best work. And then they will give us the authority to be their leader. Not just because we've got the title or because we mm. want to be the leader, mm. but actually because they feel safe enough or inspired enough to follow us. Ryan, there's a metaphor that I learned that describes that perfectly. And I just learned it last year. And it really, it helps me uh, to, to boil this down. And it's, the term is called heliotropic leadership, helios from the sun. And, um, just as the sun nurtures seeds so that they can grow on their own uh, and thrive and flourish, if a leader instead realizes that they're, they can generate warmth and light for the people around them and help them grow and become powerful, or they can do the opposite and continue by shedding darkness and coldness uh, and watch people wither around them. So it, that idea of heliotropic leadership is, came up when you were just speaking. Yeah, thank you for that. I could ask many, many more questions. I could spend all day with you, but that would not be a good use of your time. Um, <laughs> I, I have one final question, and it, we alluded to it earlier. I have a word here, always better than yesterday, it's called heartprint. And when I was at the police, we used to teach the Lockhart's exchange principle, which is this idea that every contact leads to a trace. And we used to teach detectives this concept so that they go to the scene and they try and find something that the offender has left of themselves at the scene. I believe leaders need to be taught this concept because it's this idea that we're always going to leave a trace. And I believe it's our heart-centered interactions that leave people better than we found them, which then creates this one degree of possibility where they might go exactly as you described earlier, go and have a more loving and positive exchange with somebody else throughout the day. Jonathan, I'd love for you in this moment just to reflect on what you think your heart print will be. When everything is over, and I've thought about this, uh, my heart print will not be something that uh, came naturally for me. I think it's something that I lost and something that's taken many, many years so that I can create that print on others. I'm still working on it. I haven't found the, the solutions yet, but I'm a student and I'm never going to stop learning. Uh, it's It's about love. It really is as simple as that. The heart print is about learning to love when we weren't raised with a certain kind of love. It's about learning to love ourselves when everyone's telling us that we're not good enough. Uh, it's about learning to love the world when the world is ugly and messy and scary at times. And uh, I say that simply because once I've decided to generate that love and imprint it on my own heart, I was able to start imprinting it on those very, very dear to me. So my family, my friends, my patients, 
And uh, then <laughs> the paradox is that as I was imprinting that onto other people's hearts, I could feel this print of others on my own heart as I feel yours today. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, my friend. Uh, I'll, I'll share all your good links in the, in the show notes. I'll add the uh, the pre-order for the book in the show notes too. That's Just One Heart coming out in, uh, is it spring 2024? Should be before then. Yeah, and the pre-sale is uh, just this month. Ah, oh, incredible. Jonathan, like I say, I could talk to you all day. Thank you for your hard work, my friend. Uh, I'm, you know, joyed to be on this journey with you. And I'd just be honored if you'd leave us a final thought from your good self. My final thought is very simple. Uh, which is what my sister Andrea told me um, before she was diagnosed and when she saw that I was deeply suffering. And the final wish is for all of you, can you simply just today be kind to yourself? Can you be kind to yourself today? Gentle, loving, and kind to yourself and see what happens. Beautiful. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Hey, my friends, thank you for making it to the end. I hope that our time spent together today has left you a little bit better than before you push play. I'd really appreciate if you just took a moment to leave a review to allow me to meet more people where they are and hopefully leave them a little bit better too. If you're curious to know how I, through Always Better Than Yesterday, can serve you, your team, your organisation, then head to alwaysbetterthanyesterday.com to connect. And while you're there, let me know one or two things that you're going to do as a result of listening to this conversation. I absolutely love hearing your thoughts, your reflections, and the things that this spark in your own heart and mind. If you want more insights from my heart and mind, I do send out short episodes on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And again, I hope that they serve you well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Ryan Hartley, host of the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast, a podcast for heart-centered leaders just like you. Keep leading, my friends. Always love.